Hello everyone, today we're talking about an episode of Doctor Who from its sixth season. Uh, it is The Doctor's Wife. The TARDIS Cloister Bell. Imminent disaster. The Cloister Bell? Yes. What's that? Well, it's a sort of communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations. That's the Cloister Bell. Don't worry about that for now, it's not really terribly significant. Hello everyone, welcome back to Cloisterbell Podcast. I'm Rob and I'm here with Liam. Don't be shy. Hi Rob, hi everyone. <laughs> How are you doing? Uh, yes, not too bad. It uh, hasn't been too bad a week. Uh, work-wise, it's been quite pleasant. Uh, it hasn't been too bad because I had a, the, the previous week off, which I really needed. Um, and the week's gone really quick. And the weather's slowly starting to pick up, although it's a bit... Um, it's sort of like we seem to be sim- we seem to be simulating the weather of sort of the desert because in 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 the day you know it's 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 you know the sun's out it's really quite warm and then even before it's sunset in the evening suddenly the the temperature's really plummeting but the point where it's like oh, it's weird having to put the the central heating on oh yeah given how you know, nice the weather's been earlier on the day but uh, yeah it's it's all good and how about you um, not bad. Um, I think the week's gone well. I barely remember what day it is half the time. Um, but yeah, the weekend tomorrow for mm-hmm. us. Yeah. I don't want to confuse the listeners because it, it is today in the future for all the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> it is Monday today. But it's I'm, Friday for us. tired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that wasn't at all confusing. <laughs> Timey-wimey. Yeah. So, um, have you been watching anything? Um or reading anything? Uh, yes, I've still been uh, reading the novels of Frederick Forsyth. So um, I'm reading his third, which is The Dogs of War, which I'm really enjoying. Um, uh, I started reading uh, Andrew Roberts's biography of Churchill last year. Um, and it's, it's the most comprehensive biography of Churchill in a single volume. I started reading it last year, and um, I read the first half, which is obviously from the point of it's obviously starting from his childhood and then going through uh, early adulthood, all to the point of him becoming prime minister during the Second World War, and started reading that. And then I took a break because obviously it's incredibly comprehensive, and the chapters are really dense. It's just especially when it's coming up to the sections of the Second World War. It doesn't feel like there's any um, any military planning that isn't missed. It's you know you're getting it does feel like you're getting hit with pretty much every possible fact there is under the sun. I mean you're not, but um, there is an awful lot to take in. So I took a break from that. So I've started. Uh, I've continued. So I've recently took that up again, and I'm now reading the second half. Nice. <laughs> that was a bit long-winded. Uh, just to, yeah, but anyway, I, I am enjoying that. But it, it's uh, it's a lot of information. A bit comprehensive, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, my wife's been watching Grey's Anatomy, and she's probably on season seven or eight now. So I've been kind of dipping in and out of that. Mm-hmm. Funnily enough, there, there was an episode today. I only watched bits of the episode, so I only seen half of it. But it was um, at the hospital and. There'd been an incident at some convention, so there was all these kind of cosplay people there, and there was one guy who had lost his ear in all this commotion, and <laughs> him and his mate um, 
well, the guy that had lost his year, he was like, oh, he was saying how the first few, so many people who got into the convention got this um, signed TARDIS by Russell T. Davis. Oh, um, right. <laughs> and the guy with his year was like, oh, at least I got that. And then his friend, clutching his toy TARDIS, was like, oh, no, I, I, I got mine, but you didn't get yours, or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's actually uh, that reminds me do you remember the, the first uh, Doctor Who convention that we went to in 2013 I think it was for the 50th and uh, we were queuing up I've forgotten who, uh, who we were queuing up to get something signed by but there was a, there was a woman in front of us which had a really good uh, wooden model replica of the TARDIS and it was it had been signed um, and I remember her I remember overhearing a conversation. It was the because uh, her father was a Doctor Who fan. She was a Doctor Who fan, um, and her father had made this, but had sadly passed away. But it, it, he had all the signatures from from you know when he when he was still alive from conventions that he went to. Going back to you know it had I think it, it, you know Patrick Troughton had signed it, John Pertwee, and all the companions, and now she was taking it into the modern era. So it was just. I mean, it was an amazing thing, and it was just covered all, you know, with all these uh, autographs from from people basically from from as early as. Um, when did Patrick Trump become the Doctor again? Sixty six. Uh. Yes, I think it was nineteen sixty six. Yeah, so, if, so. And people, uh, and there was like producers and actors and all the rest of it. it uh, I thought that was, you know, that was quite an yeah. impressive thing. I do remember that. Yeah, good callback. Yeah. The Married to Who podcast. Um, mentioned on Twitter um, did you know Grey's Anatomy the show that I've been watching um, began the same year Doctor Who came back um, but yeah <laughs> it, it does feel quite modern but then again it's got like 19 seasons or so so, so yeah it kind of makes sense <laughs> yeah, <laughs> do the yeah. maths. Um, but yeah it's strange I mean we've all got these different perspectives uh, of how time passes um, mm-hmm. for some people the new era started within their lifetime or before their lifetime, which is a bizarre thought. A lot, the major. I wonder if the majority of fans that are online are all kind of new, new era fans. Yeah, it'd be yeah, it'd be interesting. Uh, let us know, listeners. Um, I mean, one of the things that when I'm watching the uh, the special features on the the Blu-ray box sets because. Um, they not only have the new special features, but they also have the special features that were included on the DVD. And it's weird watching those um, at the very end when the year comes up. Mm. And you just go, blimey, you know, um, that that came out in 2007. And you're just plotting it in relation to you know, what you were doing then. And it's just, oh, it doesn't... I'm, it's weird. And, uh, um, and then for today's um, episode that we're reviewing... Because that was really uh, that was originally broadcast in 2011, which is 10 years ago. It's like what? I remember watching this when it came out. It doesn't feel like it was 10 years ago. It, uh, it, oh, it's just yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the 40th doesn't actually seem like that long ago. Because when you mentioned the DVDs, I mean, we've still got DVDs that I've got like the 40th anniversary sticker on and things like that, mm-hmm. um, which doesn't seem like that long ago. Which was 2003, right? Yeah, um, yeah, but then it, well, it sort of does for me a bit because I remember the very last uh, Doctor Who VHS that I bought was Doctor Who and uh, Doctor Who the Mutants, the John Pertwee story, and I remember seeing because that came with the uh, sticker on the cover for the uh, for the 40th anniversary. I love the logo that they did how they turned the H into a four. Do you 
you remember that? Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I've forgotten the chap's name who designed that, but I remember reading an interview that he did uh, with regards to um, designing that, and he actually said that he thought he'd failed in the design because a lot of people had failed to realise that the H was actually a 4. It's obvious. <laughs> Is it not? <laughs> um... Probably, I don't know. but I just It was in it was... red, the rest was in blue or something. Yeah. yeah, maybe it was because the way that the, the fall was fought. Anyway, I don't know. People, according, according to him, a lot of people hadn't initially clocked that he turned the H into a fall. But anyway. Well, some people are just slow. <laughs> <laughs> I got there straight away. <laughs> yeah, it was. We'll get it was, you, Rob. We just okay. had the 40th and now the 60th is almost here. I know that's. We need, we need to get planning for the 60th. Well, we the thing book, is, will, will I, we book the day off work and the following day? Yeah, why not? Um, any excuse, really. Well, the thing is, right, because I got under, I got into Doctor Who during its uh, when it, during its thirtieth anniversary. So that means, when it comes to the sixtieth, I will be a fan. Hang on, I'm going. I think you probably know what I'm going to try to say, but I don't know whether I can actually articulate it properly. I will be a fan for as long as the show was. No, how old the show was when I first became a fan. Yeah, more confusing time talk. Yeah, yeah, sorry everyone. Hopefully you, you get the gist of what I'm trying to say. But I, yeah, it's oh, it's just, it's weird. And I haven't been watching anything else this week. I, I did watch Godzilla King of the Monsters today. Um, well, I, well, I watched it in a couple of sittings just over the week. I uh, finished that today, which is quite cool because... Godzilla vs Kong has just been released, and um, King of the Monsters was the uh, the movie that preceded that. So I thought mm-hmm. I'll catch up on that. Um, and it was quite cool because you had um, Godzilla and Rodan the Fire Demon, and King Ghidorah, the three-headed alien dragon thing, and uh, Mothra was there. It was all cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you seen that? Uh, no, no, I haven't. No. <laughs> It was. I mean, you didn't see much monster action, but compared to the first one, you did because it was the few and far between in the first Godzilla. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So <laughs> that's that. I need to see the new one. <laughs> so, um, quick social media reminders before we continue: follow us on social and and have a chat with us and get all the updates. Review us on. Podchaser or Apple Podcasts after you've finished listening Um, and you can support us on Patreon for early access and more so on with the plot for The Doctor's Wife The 11th Doctor receives a message from an old Time Lord friend the message brings him Rory Williams and Amy Pond to another universe where they must meet an alien who eats TARDIS Tardises. Where they meet an alien, they're not not where they must meet. <laughs> you get the gist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, cast info for this one: we have Idris slash the Tardis by Saran Jones. She'd previously played the eyebrowless Mona Lisa in a story called Mona Lisa's Revenge, which was part of the Sarah Jane Adventures third series. The voice of House was Michael Sheen. He would he later acted alongside David Tennant in the TV series Good Omens, uh, written by Neil Gaiman. Nephew by Paul Casey. Um, he played a lot of monsters from Rose onwards. 
up until the latest series, actually. So, yep, it's been around for a while. Uncle was Adrian Schiller. Auntie was Elizabeth Barrington. The production crew for this, we had, of course, Neil Gaiman wrote this one. And it was directed by Richard Clark. We'll go through a few little facts that I found out before we get on to the main review. Uh, the Junkyard TARDIS was actually designed as part of a Blue Peter competition. Do you remember that happening, Liam? And have you seen the original design? Yes, I, I do remember that. Um, in, I mean, at that point, it was I, I wasn't watching Blue Peter. I mean, I remember watching it as a kid, but at that point it was... Um, Is it still I do, going? That's a good question. I think if it is, it might be on CBeebies or something. I don't think it's on BBC One anymore. If it is, um, I think th- it's one of the- it must do because I think if they stopped broadcasting it, surely it would be because it's a British institution. It's been, you know it's it's been going in since uh, when was it nineteen fifty eight or something. Mm. Um, but yes, uh, going back to the competition, I, I do remember that, um, and I think that because it was announced that there's a winner and everything like that, and I think. It was announced in time for um, Matt Smith's first season. Um, so I, th- I think people were expecting it to, to be seen at some point during that season. I know I was. Um, but oh, yes, of course, because The Doctor's Wife was intended to be a Series 5 episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but for whatever reason, it was delayed or maybe... you know, uh, I know that Neil Gaiman wrote in, uh, quite a few things into the story which then had to be taken out for budgetary reasons, so it may, may have been due to that it was pushed back. But, yeah. I learned a few facts from the commentary. Uh, I didn't have a chance to get through all of it because um, the last minute I realised, oh, of course, there's a com- commentary, so I had a little skim through that and got a few little facts. The commentary was actually by Neil Gaiman himself, if you want to check that out, um, he reveals there was a working title for the story originally, which was The House of Nothing. Um, it was later changed to Bigger on the Inside uh, when it, the script was in the early draft stage. He states that Idris, Idris was not niece to the to the family um, because she was more of a, of a late arrival um, whose body they used. Um, during the writing process, Gaiman didn't know that Amy was a ganger, you know, like a, a duplicate. Oh, and yes, I completely forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's something he wasn't aware of, so that's not really incorporated into the story. Mm-hmm. He believes he made canon, the Time Lord gender kind of swapping thing, mm-hmm. which um, I'm pretty sure this is the first reference on a proper television episode of that. Apart from a curse of fatal death. He was determined to have corridor running and a quarry included. So two hallmarks of Doctor Who. <laughs> he discovered the word petrichor a few months before writing this. So he decided to incorporate that. I mean, I'm not sure I like his interpretation of it. He says it's the smell of dust in rain. Um, when, in fact, I think it's actually when the rain reacts... With the oils of like this kind of algae that settles on the pavement, you know the smell though, yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure it's Terry Pratchett uses petrichor at some point in one or two of his books. I'll have to look that up. It seems familiar. In the first draft of the story, house was actually a house, but Moffat thought there were 
far too many strange creepy houses in the previous series so that was um, excluded <laughs> right, excluded okay. he believed Idris's hexagonal jail may have been built from um, part of a TARDIS um, the gibberish that she says in the cell was supposed to be the only water in the forest is the river backwards ah okay um, yeah and he also mentioned Pertwee's tattoo because we have this tattoo from the Corsair. Um, in, in his head, he believes the tattoos appear with a regeneration. So, of course, they appeared on Pertwee, unless we're missing the scene where he nipped off and got it. Um, <laughs> but with the Corsair, he might not have went out and got inked. It just kind of <laughs> regenerated with them in various places, perhaps. Well, there's a, there's a fan theory with, with that, because I think uh, John... P- John Pertwee was the only Doctor who had a tattoo, or certainly the only actor that we saw with it. Uh, so there was a fan theory to try and explain that, which was because he was exiled to Earth, uh, the notes gave him a sort of like an exile prison tattoo, and that's what that was. Ah, <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> Jeez. Fair enough. Um, so on to the main review. So... The story opens with Auntie, Uncle and Cousin escorting Idris to have her mind extracted by House. Uh, she willingly goes through with it, but at the same time, um, it doesn't seem as if she wants to. So she's a bit reluctant, but mm-hmm. goes ahead with it anyway. Uh, clearly no one else wants to take her place. And this is also the only time in the story that we actually see the real Idris before her mind's removed. Um but did you know that in older versions of the script, it, House didn't take... Sorry, the TARDIS didn't take over Idris's mind until later on in the story. Um, but it was Moffat's choice to kind of have this revealed before the titles. So, you know, people kind of... It sets things up and people know what's coming. So it was a, it was a kind of narrative choice on Moffat's behalf. No, I, d- I didn't know that. Um, what What are your thoughts on that? Do you think it would have been better if uh, if it was held back as Neil Gaiman clearly intended it, or do you, or do you prefer Stephen Moffat's structure of it? There's a lot packed into this one story, mm-hmm. so perhaps it functions. The rest of the story functions better because it's there in the beginning. But that said, the opening scene does feel a bit rushed like there's this whole character of Idris who we don't get to know um, it, it's a bit back and forward because we get to see Auntie and Uncle and Idris then we'll have a scene on the TARDIS then we're back in the bubble dimension where she gets taken over and we'll find out it's clear what's happened um, so it does feel a bit rushed in that respect do you think that's right? Yes, I mean, I, I didn't know that actually, uh, so I'm, I'm only finding this out for the first time. Um, I mean, structure-wise, I don't think it affects the story too negatively, but now it's sort of it's it's one of those tantalising things. Um, going, oh, I wonder what it'd been like if we, if we had Neil Gaiman's original intention. To be honest, I mean, nothing towards Stephen Moffat's choice because I still think it works. Uh, I do think it is a little because it's a bit funny because the the Doctor's wife is I think it's safe to say is probably a fan favorite. I mean it's a very strong episode, um, but one of the things that people don't talk about is the fact that um, a woman dies, uh, which is uh, which is Idris, 
And it feels a bit sort of inconsequential, really, to the rest of the story. I mean, a woman's died to house, you know, really that should be perhaps made a bigger thing. And um, I think it would have been quite good if we, the audience, found out what happened to the TARDIS at the same time that the Doctor cottons onto it. Um, yeah, that would have been a good that, reveal, I guess. Yeah. That would have been a really good reveal. Um and would have been a, a very pleasant surprise. Whereas what this means is that with this structural choice, it means that we, the audience, are ahead of the Doctor. You know, yeah. we know what's happened to the TARDIS before the Doctor does. Um, and we also know it's going to get resolved. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it's it doesn't. It, it's not too much of a problem in the sense that it doesn't. I don't think it negatively affects the episode. It still sort of works. But knowing that, what now knowing that there was that original intention to hold back on it, I think maybe that would have been better. Mm-hmm. Now that we're talking about the pre-title scenes, it must have been a bit liberating getting rid of them from uh, from series twelve onwards. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's, there's obviously there was a necessity to have this, and it's like. It's like writing a story or writing an article um, where you have this first paragraph that needs to get the attention and kind of summarise what's coming up and things like that. Um, so it must have been a lot of pressure sometimes for getting the pre-title scene right. Um, yeah, I think so. And in terms of, I think it was Russell T. Davis who had said if you were comparing it to the structure of classic Doctor Who, really what the pre-title sequence was was episode one of a classic Doctor Who story, you know, told in less than a minute. And yeah. So meanwhile, in the TARDIS, we get a bit of continuity for the series. Amy and Rory reflect on seeing the Doctor die by the lake. Um, but it's not mentioned again for a while, I guess. Um, well, not mentioned again in this story. Then there's a knock at the door. So the Doctor's got mail. Mm-hmm. And we get this psychic container, this kind of hypercube. Um, it's, is that from the War Games? Yes, it is, yeah. Yeah. So we have this um, fancy-looking telepathic mail. And... It seems to be from an old acquaintance of the Doctor called the Corsair, and he's one of the good ones. Um, this is contrary to how we felt about the Time Lords in The End of Time, when he um, knew that the Time Lords were coming back, and it was probably even a, a surprise to us to see his reaction, like, oh God, like, um, depends which ones are coming back. Mm-hmm. And then it struck us like, oh yeah, even though he he misses them, there's there's a reason he's kind of glad they're gone, <laughs> almost. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was a nice surprise to finally hear of a time that he wants to meet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's mentioned that the Corsair was at times both a him or a her, so we have this first um, reference of the the gender thing going on um which is do people just kind of forget about that because we had that then of course we had missy and then when the doctor's finally going to be a woman people are saying no that can't happen <laughs> i can <laughs> so uh yeah i think i think maybe i mean it's uh i mean at this point we'd never seen und I mean, I may be wrong in this. I, don't, I think even at this point, I don't think it had been suggested in any of 
Big Finish or any of the Doctor Who novels. I may be wrong in that, but certainly in the TV series, we hadn't seen or heard it referenced that Time Lords, when they regenerate, not only can change their appearances, but also their gender. So I think this is very much the, the first reference of it, but it's really just a, it could be seen as just a throwaway line. Yeah, I took it that way. I d- it didn't strike me as something really radical or mm-hmm. so, something I really had put much thought into or something I disagreed with. Mm-hmm. It was just a fun little line and you can take whatever the Doctor says, you can take it literally or not. Um, well, I think this. I mean, I think he, it was obvious that he was uh, he was being literal in what he was saying. Um, but it, it was just a line which suggested that time lords can change their gender, and it wasn't really focused on. It was just said as a statement and quickly moved on. Which, if you're going to incorporate something like that, I suppose you could actually argue, well, this is the right way to do it. Yeah. Um, but of course, it, it needed to be. It, it's Neil Gaiman writing something. So he actually Neil Gaiman himself has you know really affected. Um, uh, a change in the show with that with that line and then what it meant was that you know later on when when we do have Missy it's sort of like well it was previously suggested in this story and I mean you don't I mean you could have just thrown thrown Missy into the mix uh, without having this line and I think it would have still worked but it's nice that you know you sort of nice from a historical perspective plotting this change of going well it was mentioned in a line in this story then we actually saw it in um uh, with missy then we actually seen a regeneration with um oh what's that awful story with peter capaldi in it uh he brings clara back and then he shoots a, a, a Time Lord general who then rege- who is a man oh, yes hell bent yes hell bent that's it uh and then uh so we actually see a man regenerate into a woman in that story. So then we actually see it, and then people still don't believe it. <laughs> and, and and then and then and then it happens to the Doctor. So you actually yeah. you know you have this sort of this. Yeah. this... So we were kind of climatized for it, but mm-hmm. not every, not, yeah. not everyone apparently. He did mention perhaps Big Finish hadn't touched upon it. I think they might have. Um, other people might know better. But back in the original run of Doctor Who Unbound stories, which explored... I completely forgot, yes. Yes, we um, had the likes of wasn't Mike, Michael Jaston, David Warner. Um, I don't know the rest, but uh, I'm pretty sure one of them was a female Doctor. Yeah, I'm sure it was, if I've gotten her name right, Annabella Weir, I think is mainly famous yes. for being uh, in comedy. She, she's in The Fast Show, for example. Mm-hmm. Yes, I completely forgot about that. Yes, you're right. So Big Finish, yes, Big Finish got there first. Totally. Also, um, the Doctor explains the symbol on the cube, which is a, a kind of a circular symbol uh, of a snake eating its tail, mm-hmm. which was a tattoo that the Corsair had in each regeneration. And back when this came out, this got my attention right away because um, I had this tattoo years before this episode came out, <laughs> but on my um, inner left forearm, I've got the seal of Rassilon. And I've got this snake going around it eating its tail. So I, I thought, oh, that, uh, I got there first. <laughs> Everyone's going to think I've got it. I've got that tape from this episode, but no. Well, I mean, it's a, it's an ancient symbol. Um, I mean, I may be wrong in this. I, I, uh, I mean, the, I mean, I associate it more with uh, as a Celtic image, but it's sort of like an image that is seen uh, within the history of different cultures and as a means of representing infinity and, and other things as well. Um, and so it is, you know, it is an ancient symbol. 
Uh, yeah. And one, one of the things that I quite like about uh, its incorporation here, because it, it actually it actually makes a plot point later on, but I just like this aspect because the way that the Doctor explains it was that there, ha he, there was this Time Lord who kept on regenerating, but had wanted to have this constant thing within the regenerations, which in this case was that uh, was that tattoo. Yes. You know, it didn't didn't feel uh, him or herself unless uh, unless they had it. Yeah. Um, and it does kind of symbolise, in some ways, like uh, infinity or renewal. Um, so yeah, it does. It is kind of in fitting with the regeneration, I guess. Of course, it does. It's got connection to Doctor Who now. Uh, it was featured in an episode of Red Dwarf. Ah, there you it's, go. It's this. Um, people say it different ways. There's Alburus Uroboros, mm. but in this episode of Red Dwarf. Um, it was written on the side of Lister's box when he was a baby, oh, right, <laughs> left okay. under a pool table. Uh -huh. And they couldn't dis people thought his parents couldn't decide whether to call him R. Rob or Ross. <laughs> <laughs> but then, of course, he was called neither of that. Well, you know. um, in Chris Carter's X-Files universe, uh, Scully has the tattoo. And it's also um, a symbol of the Millennium Group in the X-Files spin-off Millennium, starring Lance Henriksen. So, yeah, a, a few more sci-fi links to, the, to that symbol. <laughs> so, when they leave the universe to go to the bubble universe, he says goodbye to the swimming pool, the scullery, and squash course seven. Goodbye. I did read somewhere that Gaiman did intend to have a swimming pool scene. But um, it was but, edited because... Uh... Karen Gillan can't swim. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, yeah, I heard couldn't this, swim yeah. at the time. Mm -hmm. When they arrive in House's universe, the power seems to be drained from the TARDIS. Similar to Rise of the Cybermen, Age of Steel. Not the same. In that instance, um, the power was kind of drained and restored. But in this instance, the Doctor is saying, well, where the hell did it go? And, and it's like the TARDIS... Um, power or its soul which the Doctor refers to as the TARDIS Matrix is seen entering uh, Idris's body um, so again yes it's very clear to the audience what's happened at this stage yeah. um, they embark from the TARDIS into a junkyard uh, I don't know if it's a subtle reference or not to Tata's Lane or not I think it is actually I, yeah. I read somewhere that it was uh, Neil Gaiman making a reference to the fact that we're first introduced to the TARDIS uh, in a scrapyard in the very first uh, episode of Doctor Who back in 1963. Um, yeah. So you put this as a sort of a reference to that. Yeah, it seems quite fitting. Mm -hmm. um, clearly, there's a lot of stuff from Earth here. We've got like a washing machine, for example, bathtubs, things like that. Yeah. And then we've got the Doctor's analogy of soap bubbles that he gives. Um to Amy and Rory um, nice little explanation for the viewers uh, this place is filled with rift energy so the Doctor presumes that the TARDIS will just refuel by sitting there mm -hmm. which is kind of a, a reference to Boomtown yes yeah yeah and also things have been washed up there um, like things coming through the rift like just like the Cardiff rift mm -hmm. so a similar kind of um, kind of thing going on Idris, um, should we just call it Idris from now on, not Tardis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She, mm -hmm. she kind of runs to greet the Doctor and um, her tenses are all muddled up. 
I, like, I quite like this element because the TARDIS is this fourth dimensional kind of being. Um, so having the TARDIS's sense of perception of the world um, shouldn't necessarily be linear. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of makes sense and it's a bit of fun. It kind of foreshadows conversations which are revealed. Um, so I quite like it. Yes, yeah, I did. Yes, I did. Yes, it um, it makes sense, and it's it's a little it's a little bit of fun and playing with the, you know the, um, you know the the wibbly wobbly time element, which is a you know a hallmark of an awful lot of Stephen Moffat's stories, certainly as a showrunner, um, even though it was in Blink. But this is is done in a way which is 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 easy to follow, uh, which takes real skill as a writer um, and I like it it's, it is a lot of fun oh we have a return of the Ood mm-hmm. um, a first for the Moffat era but it's got the green eyes this time to match it with um, House's possessive colour yeah um, I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that Gaiman intended to have a brand new alien but was um, because of budgetary reasons was forced to have an Ood but the Ood works really well because the Ood were famous for being possessed in their first story. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're possessed here. But uh, it's it, it also makes the Ood a threat again because you, yeah, we, we don't know what it's capable of because it's not quite itself. Yes, and so I actually think this is, uh, you know, this is one of those instances where budget restraint actually benefits the the story a, a heck of a lot more because, as you say, it's a, a recognised uh, monster or alien at this point, um, and there is that that I mean, at the time when this was originally broadcast, it was a recent history of of Ood stories where you know they could be possessed. Um, and so it puts you, the audience, a bit on the back foot going, is this is this good or, or is it not? And usually when they're possessed and they're bad, their eyes turn red. So the fact that it's turned green, it's sort of, what, you know, what does that signify? Uh, as you said, it, uh, it all ties up and makes sense later on. And we realise that it is completely possessed by house and, you know, that's not a good thing. But, um, yeah, I think this was a restraint that actually benefits the story a lot more. The Doctor picks up the Time Lord distress signals when he's trying to fix Nephew's voice box thing. Um, which is a nice scene. Got all the all the vocals there and the music, and it's pretty cool. And then we get the reference to the High Council, which is, I was going to say the f- a first for the new series, but no, that would be end of time. Auntie comes along and explains the nature of House, so it's clear that oh, they're standing on this being, and it, this being... Um, exists in this very small universe. So a lot's kind of coming together early on. Um, the Doctor's kind of happy and convinced that there is a lot of Time Lords nearby. Mm-hmm. Um, that This is a reveal that kind of held off from the viewers, so we're discovering this as the Doctor discovers it. Did you think he would find them? Um, I mean, it was a it was a possibility, but no, because I think it was that line when Idris informs the Doctor that the the little boxes will make you angry, um, and at that point, you know, the, the, it was a it was the little box um, which got the Doctor traveling to this location in the first place. So I thought it was highly likely actually what you're going to see is uh, it's just Time Lord's consciousness trapped inside boxes. Yes. And also, I noticed the cabinet, the cupboard that the boxes are in, 
is TARDIS <laughs> blue with two little windows. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, which was a, a, a nice little thing. It's not so much of a replica as to be uh, ridiculous, but it's yeah. it's it's a nice little nice little sort of. It looks similar enough to point the audience in the look, look at this door and yeah. Yeah, it's not it's not blatantly obvious, but mm. it's nice, nice thing. Uh, prior to that, um, we have we have a really nice scene, which is uh, the Doctor's obviously very. Um, very happy and very keen to to meet these time lords uh, which he thinks are are, are there um and there's just this scene where amy says to the doctor it's because you want to be forgiven um and there's just a nice little touching moment and you get the the sort of the, the weight of you know what the doctor did all those years ago on him and yes it, you know and he says well doesn't everyone i, I like that scene a lot yeah because he's obviously um carrying around a lot of guilt mm-hmm. mm. and it's uh it's very nicely written and very nicely performed. It's not, it's not so heavy as to be lumpen and so much in your face, but it's just a nice little character moment, and uh, you know, uh, an awful lot is conveyed in such a very nicely written, straightforward way. But he doesn't get his forgiveness. <laughs> no, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. House communicates with the Doctor finally when they follow Auntie Uncle into the compound. House explains. Uh, we get Michael Sheen's very good performance. We have this this voice that's acting very welcoming, mm-hmm. but at the same time, um, a bit creepy and ominous, and you don't want to trust it. <laughs> yes, possessive. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And he explains that there's been many Time Lords and Tardises there before. So the Doctor sends Amy back to the TARDIS um, to be safe mm-hmm. um, and he also sends Rory along to escort her and he remotely locks the TARDIS for them but uh, then the TARDIS is kind of engulfed in this green stuff so it's kind of possessed um, one uh, the option for that was to have these kind of tentacles I think yeah, gaming said but uh, I think the smoke works really well it's just kind of the green colour that um you can kind of associate with house, so it works, I think. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a nice hue, and I think uh, the smoke is a lot more o- ominous. I, mm. I actually, I think, yeah, once again, maybe this is a restraint which works much more better for the visuals and the the atmosphere of the story. I think it that's much more because it makes the it makes the threat a bit more uh, nebulous and a bit more ethereal. Um, you know, something not as tangible as, as tentacles. I think that's a bit too obvious. I actually think the smoke is a lot better. Yes. Because, um, I mean, House kind of goes into the TARDIS, so it's not something tangible. It's it, mm. it, it, it's a mind. Yeah, so yeah. we don't need to see it. Um. Uh, yes, we talked about before how the Doctor located the cubes in the cupboard and... We now know what the boxes will make you angry means. Mm-hmm. Good performance from Matt here. He's really pissed. You can tell. And <laughs> yeah. he kind of composes himself. And then he turns his attention to Auntie and Uncle and explains that they are kind of patchwork people. And he notices the Corsair's arm. So the Corsair and many other Time Lords have been harvested. Mm-hmm. And and uh, these these puppets of House have been kept alive, reassembled, reconstructed um, over the years. Mm-hmm. So there's not 
probably nothing left of who they were. I'm guessing Idris wasn't a patchwork person, though. She seems pretty whole. Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. So the Doctor goes to the cell where Idris is kept and she explains who she is. It's clear to him now. It was clear to us from the beginning. And she says, oh, this is the point where you open the door. So there's, there doesn't seem to be any doubt in his mind that she's that she's uh, telling the truth or lying at her. Well, I think at this point, because they have had a little bit of a conversation at this point, I mean, she's managed to make the, the sound of the TARDIS materialising, dematerialising. Uh, what did you make of that? Was that a bit too a bit too much? No, no. I, <laughs> the, the reason? Uh, I actually quite liked it because I didn't think it was so... I didn't think it was overly done. It was just, uh, you know, uh, snippets of the sound effect and then they just crack on with the conversation. I thought it was, you know, it was quite good. And then they have that whole conversation about... Um, you know, he he stole the TARDIS. He says he's borrowed it, and goes, "Well, no, uh, you had no intention to um, uh, to return it." Um, but I also like the, the little bit of a spin that the the, tar, the TARDIS sees that you know uh, she stole the Doctor as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, because she wanted to um, you know go out and explore the universe, and um, he was the only. He was the only Time Lord uh, crazy enough to do that. So I like that that little bit of fair uh, byplay there bet- between them. I think. It, uh... Yeah, it's it's like she's got the same perspective about him, mm-hmm. and again about about minds. She says, "Are, are people always uh, are people always like this? Bigger on the inside." Mm-hmm. So we get this call, it kind of flips on its head, and it's uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, the fact that. Idris references the first Doctor meeting her for the first time. Um, it's very vague, but I think it's obvious that they're talking about when the first Doctor entered the TARDIS and spoke to her. I know we don't like to always kind of harken back to uh, the timeless child. Ugh, but yeah. <laughs> do you, um, quick opinion, do you think this means Ruth's TARDIS was a different TARDIS? Oh, jeez. Oh, it's times like this where you. You know what? I'm that, sorry. That... We'll just move on. No, 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 no. It's absolutely fine. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not having a go at you for raising it. It's just. It's like oh, for Chris bloody shit for frick's sake. Um, Do you think the more we revisit Doctor Who, <laughs> the more the cracks will start to show? Oh, Chibnall, what have you done? You ruined it. It's like in it's terms not, of it's not. It's not a watertight. Um, yeah, because I think we actually fine. said when we were reviewing it originally, regardless of whether you like the idea or not, it's watertight. But actually, when you break it down and go to individual stories like this, you realise it it actually causes much more of a headache. Um, to be honest, Rob, when I was watching this, it didn't didn't cross my mind. Um, but actually, you know, I mean, you've raised a valid question because the timeless child is here to stay, whether you like it or not. Um, it's it's something that that you you know we've now got to consider. So now it does raise this question. It, I mean, the fact that the Ruth's TARDIS is a is a police telephone box suggests that it has to be the same TARDIS. But the interior of the TARDIS was the same as the spare TARDISes that were um, lying around in the capital. True, but then that goes into the thing of going well. You can change the desktop theme, or you can change. Mm. Uh, uh, the console and the fact it's already been established that you've got different console rooms within a TARDIS and then in fact this story even said you know the TARDIS actually archives them as well yeah 
But then you've got the whole thing that Idris references the first time she met the first Doctor, but her perception of time is non-linear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, her, the first time she she might be saying the first time she met her, met him, mm. was actually the sixtieth time. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez, this is just more, much more of a headache than I actually realised. I think. I think we'll put it in the context of when the story was originally broadcast, which was yes. that when it was first broadcast, no one had this idea of the timeless child and all the rest of it. So I think it's... They're just making this stuff up as they go, go along. along. <laughs> and uh, and I think it's quite clear that with certain elements that, that crop up in the story, that Neil Gaiman's actually a fan, or he know, he certainly knows enough about the show. Um, you know, the fact that he's referencing these boxes, which were only seen once in the war games is a, is a nice little touch. You don't have to have seen the war games in order for the story to make sense, but it's, you know, talking back to that, you've got this thing about the TARDIS jettisoning rooms, which was when, you know, Chris Midby was, you know, it's there in Logopolis, it's there in Castrovalva. And there are, you know, other things in there as well. Um, you know, you re- you, refer- you you refer to the references to Boomtown and things like that. Um, so I think it's perfectly I think it's clear that what Neil Gaiman's intention is, and I think that's what we've got to take on board, it's the writer's intention, that he is making reference to, it was William Hartnell's Doctor. Mm. Yes. Cool. And I can actually see William Hartnell's Doctor say, you know, entering the TARDIS for the first time and going, you know, it, it's the most beautiful thing he's ever seen before. I can, I can picture that. Um, you know, it's, you know, which is quite nice. And then, of course, uh, later on, in the name of the Doctor... You know when Clara, you know, is introducing uh, the Doctor to to the TARDIS for him to take and escape Gallifrey. It's the Hartnell Doctor. Yes. So, yeah. Uh, for the purpose of the story, the Timeless Child is a load of bunkum. It doesn't. It doesn't exist. Completely ignore it. It's. It's referring to William Hartnell. Fair enough. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Um, we'll get back to the time of child next week, I'm sure, as more cracks begin to show. So, Idris explains how the house has removed the TARDIS matrix in order to eat it. So, essentially, um, house needs to remove, um, yes, the the mind of the TARDIS is before they eat it, so it's just an empty shell, and by eating it, it'll kind of take over it or what, what it wasn't necessarily eaten the doctor's tardis was it just possessing it well it's explained in the story that in the past um the house has been able to consume and gain energy from from eating tardises um but the doctor informed house when they were first introduced that he's the last time lord and his tardis is the very last so house has been informed that that's the last TARDIS, so he can't actually go out and, and eat TARDISes anymore. So he goes, right, okay, well, in that case, I need to go out into our universe. Uh, we'll call it N-Space. So he needs to go into N-Space, uh, which is our universe, and then find something for him to consume. So that's the reason why he takes control of the TARDIS here, rather than um, eating it. So Auntie and Uncle expire. Uh, I don't know if this is maybe in the second act. Um, but it's a shame they could have went on to do more. But nevertheless, Idris's body is failing too. Not for the same reasons. They haven't been given this um, this death sentence like auntie and uncle. But Idris's body is possibly failing 
because it wasn't designed to house the mind of a TARDIS. Mm-hmm. Um, but she kind of refers to the body as just just a vessel. She even says like she may blow the case in. Um, mm-hmm. So that's her perception of her of her body. So as House takes control of the TARDIS, the cloister bell tolls. Uh, and it dematerializes, returning to the main universe. <laughs> um, at this stage, had the cloister bell stopped ringing all the time? Because it used to ring a lot, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is, did. Is that a bit of a um, bit of a complaint from people? <laughs> like in a like in David Tennant's era, it would just ring in every episode. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. The Doctor comes up with a plan. Um, there's this junkyard of tarnishes. Um, and he's going to do something with that. So House decides to toy with Amy and Rory as they plead not to be killed there and then. Mm. Um, I think it's is it Amy that suggests, well, why, why don't you have some fun with us first? <laughs> um, no, it's 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 Rory. It's, and it's, it's like, yes, it's Rory. I mean, yeah, that's what I yeah. meant. Um, could have argued that one better. You're putting yourself in trouble with that argument. Yeah. Why don't you kill us slowly? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, nice one, Rory, you pillock. Um, this is notable for showing us TARDIS corridors for the first time in the new era, I believe. Which is a bizarre thing. It's such a simple thing to construct. But we just don't get enough of it. Neil Gaiman did say in the commentary, I believe, that the TARDIS sets are now... They've constructed the thing ready to be used in future stories. Mm-hmm. But no. <laughs> um, do you think we should see more of the inside of the TARDIS? And is it bizarre that we don't see it more? I think it very well. It's 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 one of those things. Um, the TARDIS is an amazing idea, um, and if designed well, it can be incredibly interesting and captivating. But at the same time, really, what the TARDIS is, it's it's a, it's a device. It's it's there for it's a device to get the Doctor and his companions to wherever it is and, and then just tell a story um you'd uh, i find that if you focus too much on the tardis it uh, it can take away that the magic of it um that doesn't happen here but it does happen later on with a story journey to the center of the tardis which i just think is mind-numbingly dull um having said so that bizarre I, like it sounds like such a great idea like oh that'd be a good one Yes, it does sound like a good idea, but I think that was murdered by... um, I don't think the story was particularly good, but the other thing, which was... I don't think the design of the interior of the TARDIS was particularly good. It looked boring. Um, And that's a problem. If you're going to explore the TARDIS, uh, make it visually interesting. Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS fails on that. Um, Yeah, so it's a bit of a funny one. It's sort of one of those things where really it, it, it depends on the story obviously but i think it's it's also very much dependent on the um on the production design of it as well um uh, i think journey to the center of the tardis is a is a visually boring story it works it works here because actually they've just got um you know uh, some few corridors but there's 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 um they managed to do some good things um 
within that. And actually, it's it's really what takes place in terms of the drama. This is where, I mean, the, the story's been very good up until this point. It's been very atmospheric. It's been interesting. It's been engaging. But now suddenly, um, it seems to have a real bite. And whenever I've thought about this episode, this is the, this is the bit that really, re- you know, this is the bit that really sticks in my mind. It's horrible what House does. So this is the bit when he uh, House, so um, uh, Amy and Rory are, are running through the TARDIS uh, corridors and House separates them. And then because it's the TARDIS and you're able to experiment with time, it's a really interesting idea what Neil Gaiman does in this. Uh, and he, se- he, he separates them and they experience time in different ways and mentally torture them as a result. So for what feels like Amy is saying that, you know, she's only been separated from from Rory for for 10 seconds for him it's been hours um and then later on it's it's years and then of course i think the most disturbing bit of it is is later on when she comes across his uh, comes across his corpse but obviously he'd been I mean, because when she encounters him, when it's been you know many many years, he's he's been talking about it's how really he's been, resentful. Yeah. He's been yeah, really resentful. It's horrible to see you know that you know you know Rory, um, is very loving and dedicated to Amy, and then suddenly he's very resentful. That's that's shocking to see, and especially the way he's going on. But also he's been talking about you know things have been there and torturing him, and then so later on, when she encounters his corpse, um. You know, the, the TARDIS walls have been graffitied with Amy, die and kill Amy. And it, it, mm. I mean, it's really disturbing. It, how do you interpret this? Because Rory points out that House is messing with their heads. Mm. And I guess now that House is in the TARDIS, House has the capability to do either or. So we could say that this is a projection uh, or, or um, like a like a visual or a psychic projection, or you could take this literally, how House slash the TARDIS has taken Rory, Mm -hmm. created a variation of Rory that was tormented and lived and aged. So it it could have, in actuality, happened to Rory, couldn't it? It could. It's never been made clear. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question, Rob, because later on when they're both uh, united and, and everything's fine and then they're running... There's then that bit when uh, Amy's perception of the lights, be, you know, the, the TARDIS lights have gone, and and Rory's perception is that no, there's nothing wrong with the lights. Yeah. So House is clearly able to separate their perception even further. So uh, it's a good point. I think it's really. Uh, I mean, the main point is that House is basically torturing them. So that's the main thing to take away from it. it whether it happens or not, I think it's up to you, the audience. Um, with regards to that bit with with Rory, I mean, I mean, I mean, I may be completely off it, but I've always taken those moments to have literally happened. Yes, there is a good. Well, I was going to say good movie. It's not. It's not really a great movie, um, but there is a movie called Cube, which you might be familiar with. I haven't seen it, but I have heard of it. I know which one you're talking about. I do want to watch that. Well, uh, the whole concept is this great concept, and uh, mm. the whole movie is set in a room. Um, which is a cube with, on each wall and the ceiling and the floor, there is a door. Mm-hmm. And in each door, it takes you to another room. Um, which, so for the movie, they've used the same set, which is a, um, um, this is a really, really cheap idea, but it really works. And these rooms also move around, and there's traps and all sorts. There is a sequel called Cube 2 Hypercube, um, 
possibly not as gory. It is cheaply made, but not as cheaply, so it kind of loses that cool cheap vibe. <laughs> but uh, in this in this CubeTube Hypercube, the characters experience time flow at different rates, ah, and okay. then also different variations of the characters that have diverged. So it's it deals with a similar kind of scenario. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's a very good idea, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, so um, I was getting reminded of that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Originally, Rory was not going to be in this story um, for as far as Neil Gaiman was concerned. Um, he was delighted when he was told at the stage the story was coming out, he gets to, he gets to use Rory. But originally, it was just going to be Amy and House kind of playing board games or something like that. Um, I don't know if that would have worked, but uh, I'm glad we got this version. Yeah, yeah, I, to- yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, and I think there was also an early draft where it was actually the Doctor and House in the TARDIS, but he thought having the Doctor trying to outrun uh, House, the Doctor would have been able to know his way around and um, outsmart him in the TARDIS because he would have been more familiar with it, perhaps. Mm-hmm. So the Doctor and Idris look over the broken TARDISes uh, as they look kind of over the summit of the hill. Um, it's something we didn't consider, but Idris um, feels empathy for all the all the broken TARDISes, which were kind of her brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. And then they do go on to assemble a control room for a TARDIS using bits and pieces of the create a console without a shell with a couple of walls and this is the blue peter design yeah um, do you like the design yeah yeah i do i think yeah. it was a very good design um yeah i think because I, th- I, th- I think um the d- the designer i think she was 12 years old when she did it and i think you know, uh, she did a very good job and obviously it's helped with the, the the way that it's assembled i mean yeah i think it's a very good design i like it yeah and i think one of the if you check out the design there's loads of cool things on there they take a, a coat hanger to pull mm-hmm. um, and lots of different things, deodorant, I think. <laughs> but there's also two skip and rope handles to steer the TARDIS. And I think kind of Matt does pick up two kind of rope things and, and put them in. So I think um, that's kind of incorporated. The Doctor has no way to power the TARDIS, but Idris reveals that she can power it. And then they kind of take flight in pursuit Idris sends a message to the pretty one being Rory. <laughs> yes, <laughs> love that. Yeah, I um, thought because obviously we all think it's oh, it's, it's going to be it's going to be Amy. <laughs> Even the doctor's surprised. <laughs> Rory, pretty. But yeah, I, I did like that. It was good. And she directs them to the old control room. Mm-hmm. Um, in earlier versions, this was going to be the classic control room. Ah, oh, why did? I remember when I first uh, watched this and it was just going, oh, we're going to see a new version of the console. Uh, sorry, not a new version. Uh, we're going to see an old uh, version of the console room. What's it going to be? Um, you know, and I was thinking, oh, it could be the one from the 80s. It could be the... And, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's it's um, it's actually quite good later on when we see actually Matt Smith in, you know, the, the Eccleston Tenant console room. It somehow works. Um, I like it, but at the same time, I remember thinking... Oh, uh, I wish yeah. it was a much older one. I was a bit, I was a bit, a little bit disappointed. Yeah, uh, on original broadcast, <laughs> yeah, he just got rid of that one. Yeah. But um, 
watching it again, I, I, I don't feel as disappointed. It's just, it's, it, it's good to see. Yeah. Apparently, it was the set was left up for this story. All ah, right. Okay. Oh, it makes sense because yes, um, originally it was going to be the story was going to be made for Matt Smith's first season. Yes. So how long it would have been there? Wouldn't. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that makes sense. Right. If you, if you, sorry, I'm uh, just curious. If if you had a choice of which console room it would be, what would it be? I, I you know what, I'd probably go for the Five Doctors, Tardis. Right. Okay. I mean, if 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 money was no object and and whatever, and you were just able to have your you know your, your dream for 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 this, but I would have to pick the TV movie console. If only, yeah. Yeah, I know. One, one day, no. I, probably not. I think uh, I think there's probably a, a case of you know th- copyrights with Fox and that designs owned to Fox or Universal or whoever owns the the, the rights for because it's a bit like um, I think Big Finish at some point wanted to bring back um, uh, Grace. Um, yeah, but think, couldn't because yeah. copyrights. Yes. Oh, I, I do think they said it would be too expensive, so it's not. Outside, outside the realm of possibility, mm. but um, yeah, it just wouldn't be worth it. Yeah, which is a shame. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Save it for um, when she comes back on TV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. So the doctor believed that the old control rooms had been deleted or remodeled, but Idris says that she archived them and she's got about thirty now. He says he's only changed the desktop a dozen times, so she's archived future variations. Actually, I wonder—I know you don't want me to bring this up. Go but, on. Uh, maybe this further proves that pre-Hartnell Doctors didn't have this TARDIS. Because she's archived... Well, it could be either or. She's archived more, so it could be previous incarnations control rooms. But well, the well, fact that she's archived future ones... Yes. Could mean that um, she's only got Hartnell onwards and beyond. Yeah, I like that. It, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Amy and Rory are messed with further. <laughs> Amy can't see, as he said, her sight was taken. Why the heck does Rory wander off? Who says, you wait here, I'll wander off? <laughs> just <laughs> hold her hand if she can't see. That's what I thought. Off. Just hold her hand, you. But once again, being a bit of a pro, I think that's what probably the, the, it's the one instance of the story where maybe the writing because you, you, the audience, really shouldn't be at that thing where you're questioning the motives and the actions of the characters. No, unless uh, Rory was slightly possessed. No, um, I mean maybe, but I, I don't think he was. I think it's one of those things. I mean, maybe Neil Gaiman was having a bit of fun because it is a it is a typical horror movie trope um, yeah. type thing. Of going, you wait here, and I'll just. R- <laughs> leave you alone in this scary situation for a moment where anything could happen to either yeah. one of us. So, unfortunately, she sticks her hand right, right in nephew's mouth. <laughs> Ew! <laughs> <His> big spaghetti mouth. <laughs> yes. So they get to the door of the old, old console room, and Idris sends the psychic passwords: Crimson, Eleven, Delight, Petrichor. Mm-hmm. So as Amy looms. No, as nephew kind of looms on them, Amy quite cleverly figures out that they must be telepathic passwords. Um, thank God Amy was there. Yeah, Rory would never have gotten there. But what? So happened? she and Matt. 
But what happens, what? you're in the TARDIS, right? And you need to get into a room, and you know the password, and you've got to think it through. But what happens if you don't have much of an imagination? I mean, Amy's really able to, like, completely visualise these things in her mind, which is really impressive. Yeah, but what she happens seems if... to... Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You'd be screwed, that... wouldn't you? Yeah. So she seems to visualise Superman's cape, <laughs> it seems, or a big red flag. I think it's a big red flag, but yeah, big Superman's red. cape, yeah. Uh, yep. Uh, and 11th birthday cake. Yeah. Um, this is her birthday cake. What is she remembering? Because, um, oh wait, this is this is Amy from after Big Bang Two. Mm-hmm. So this Amy had her parents all along. Yes. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, delight. She remembers her wedding day. And raindrop hitting the ground for Petrico. Yeah. So they enter the old control room, last scene destroyed at the end of time part two. So uh, a console room being destroyed doesn't prevent it from being archived or mm-hmm. backed up. How seems surprised that this place wasn't on his schematics. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's places hidden within the TARDIS, even from the TARDIS archives and the Doctor himself. Yeah. Uh, which is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, they lower the TARDIS shields, um, so that gives purpose for Amy and Rory being in the TARDIS. Uh, they're able to lower the shields. Um, nephew approaches, and they get a me- message from Idris. Um, and then they kind of materialise on top of Nephew, so he's kind of atomised and dispersed in the air. The doctor explains to Amy excitedly that she's a woman. Well, not Amy. <laughs> that um, the TARDIS is a woman. Mm-hmm. Of course, Amy is a woman. And she's like, oh, did you wish really hard? Yeah, I love this scene. Just, I, I love, I love um, the absolute delight that um, Matt Smith has uh, <laughs> and his entire performance. Just going, it's the TARDIS. And it's, she's a woman, and it's just all that. And just, and then Amy, as you said, Amy's because she's, and again, Amy, uh, uh, Karen Gillan's performance of that. I'm going. Did you wish really hard? And then I love because there's a sort of childlike innocence of of the way that Matt Smith goes. Shut up, not like that. Yeah. I just, I love, I just love how all that 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 bit's performed. I just think it's it's great. It's delightful, and it puts a smile on your face. So when realizing that nephew has been killed, the doctor says. Another Ood I failed to save. Referencing, of course, all the Ood that um, he was not able to rescue in the Satan Pit 2 part. House talks of killing them, and the Doctor points out that his only hope of breaking out. Sorry, he points out that the Doctor is House's only hope of breaking out of the bubble universe uh, because he hasn't got enough power to leave. Mm hmm. Uh, meanwhile, Idris whispers something to something to Rory, and he thinks she's asking for water, um, which would turn out to be something in a moment. Um, the Doctor says, "Go on, delete thirty percent of the rooms, and it'll give the TARDIS more thrust." So he's given House the means to escape, but House turns this on them and decides to delete the or destroy the old control room. <laughs> um, but the Doctor was counting on this all along, and they are all teleported safely to the main control room. As Idris is dying, 
the TARDIS Matrix is released and restored. Uh, supposedly destroying House. Um, it's curious that House wasn't concerned about this moments earlier. You think he would have realised? Yeah, but I mean, it's it, it's obvious that it, it never crossed his mind because the Doctor is the Doctor's the one who has to um, ex, you know explain to House what's about to happen. Yes. Um, so that's the end of House in in the original version of the script. There was to be a burial of Idris, and they're kind of, kind of putting it to rest, and it would have been implied that House then possessed Idris's body, surviving. Mm-hmm. All right, okay. But that ne- that never came to be, so it's not it's not a not really canon. <laughs> Idris returns to speak to the Doctor um, in some kind of holographic form. Are we going going with that? Yeah. Um, and she says it's sad when it's over. So, and she also got to say hello. <laughs> yes. Of course, the, yeah. the first thing she said was was goodbye at some point, and now she gets to say hello, which is a uh, more non-linear stuff. They're all very emotional at this point. Um, Idris and the Doctor. Um, I don't know if it's just me, or if this wasn't an emotional time for the viewers. Um, I might be turning it into a soppy old thing. Watching. Um, watching this episode uh, for this podcast because it'd been it'd been a long time since uh, since I last seen this. I actually did t- started to well up ah. when I was watching this scene. So I, I did. Well, actually I'm just find... dead inside. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're dead, Rob. You've got no pulse. I actually found this scene quite emotional. <laughs> and then um, as she fades away, I think if you turn the volume up, she does whisper, "I love you." Ah, right. Okay. Yeah. Was that a step too far? Um. No, I think it's it's quite nice. Um, I, I mean, maybe it didn't need to be said. Um, yeah. I think it was perfectly clear with the way that you know, the, the fact that we were both finding it very emotional. And uh, I mean, I, I mean, I like the scene because it carries a lot of weight. Not, I mean, it works within the confines of the story, uh, which is great. But obviously, it carries a lot more weight when you consider the whole history of the show and the relationship between the Doctor and the TARDIS. And finally, they're having this this chance to have a, a conversation for the the only time they're likely to do so. Um, I, I loved how Neil Gaiman wrote the scene, but I mean, the, the real thing has got to be the performances, especially Matt Smith. Um, yeah. I think he's oh, fantastic. How did, how did we how did we even forget the scene earlier when she mentioned, um, "I always take you where you needed to go." Yes, that's a. Uh, um, yeah, because that's a great scene. Because finally, the doctor goes, "You know, you're, you're never reliable. You never go where I want you. you uh, I want you to." Um, and yeah, and then she goes, "Yeah, but I always took you where where you needed to be." Which I, I think we all we always kind of suspected mm-hmm. when the doctor's on all these random excursions, um, but he always runs into trouble, or we always suspect that maybe there was a an intelligence behind that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, that was another good scene as well. So, as the episode begins to wrap up, the Doctor puts a firewall around the Matrix to prevent this happening again, mm-hmm. around the TARDIS Matrix. And Rory tells them of her m- message that she whispered to him. The only water in the forest is the river. Mm-hmm. And call me a liar if you want, but um, my first thing I turned and said to my wife was, is that because there's no pond? 
Liar. All right. Okay. No, that's. Yeah. Uh... So I'm, I was I was really glad when uh, I was pretty. I kind of hit the nail on the head with that. Yeah, yeah, you did. Yeah, I don't think I cottoned onto that. I was just probably thinking, "Wow." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the doctor says the eye of Orion is restful, which is a reference back to the five doctors and uh, time lash. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But let's move on. Yes, um, but he decides he doesn't want restful. When he references Ivor Ryan and restful, I wondered. This is a big, ref- big finish reference here. I wondered if it was he was reflecting on Molly O'Sullivan in that moment. For anyone who's listened to Eye of Darkness in Dark Eyes Four, um, sorry, Liam, you haven't you haven't heard that one. I have no idea what you're talking about, but uh, I dare say some of the listeners do, and that's the main thing. Yes. <laughs> Amy asks if she and Rory can do away with the bunk beds, finally. The doctor likes bunk beds. Uh, Rory asks if the doctor has a room. Who knows? Does the doctor have a room? There's a, um, there was a BBC book. I think it's Divided Loyalties. If I've got the... If I've, I'm sure that was the title. It was written by... Um, I've forgotten the guy's name's just completely lost me. But uh, um, it was a fifth. Uh, it was a fifth Doctor adventure, and it saw the return of the Celestial Toymaker. And there's a scene, and it may even be the first chapter. It's always stuck with me because I just think it's. I kind of like it just because I think it's it's the sort of thing I can imagine John Nathan Turner doing. So anyway, um, it's not the Doctor's asleep and he's got his own bedroom, and he's he's wearing. I think it's he's wearing these silk pajamas. And they're they're designed with question marks. Nice. <laughs> yeah, classic. But yeah, uh, anyway, yeah. So I think if if you follow the, so it's it's there in the BBC books. He has his yeah. Not only does he have his own tar- uh, bedroom, he also has his own pajamas with question marks on them. You want them, don't you? If there's a limit, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> So um, we'll move on to listeners' responses, I believe. Any more points to go over, Liam? No? Uh, no, no, I think that's everything. Neither the Time Nor Space podcast said, might be controversial, but I hated it <gasps> uh, when we watched it. Too much fan service, not enough substance. Hammy performances and a plot as dull as dishwater. Still can't warm to it. Wow, okay. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. Uh, we did get also a response from David from neither the Time or Space podcast, so maybe the previous comment was from Matt. Um, there's an argument to be made that all New Who is essentially fan fiction, but it doesn't get more fan y than this episode. This is not a criticism. Incidentally, who doesn't like being pandered to once in a while? Great script, great costumes, great performances, a delight. I guess we'll not read too much into the whole fan fiction thing because I guess it's all just fiction and wrote by fans. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think I think the the right to an extent. I mean, whether whether you think it's it's there to de- detriment the show, uh, I would argue not because even though the because I mean, you and I, Rob, have acknowledged these that there are lots of 
reference within this story to previous Doctor Who stories. I mean, going way back to an Unearthed Child in the War Games, for example. But I think they're done in a way which um, you don't have to be aware of those stories in order for this one to make sense. Really, the big thing is the relationship between the Doctor and the TARDIS. That's and because that's the big emotional payoff at the end. Totally, that's the big thing. So, Chris Bint said, "I remember really enjoying this episode and how brilliant Saran Jones was in it. He talks to the TARDIS that much. It was nice to see his wife." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Doctor Who Show podcast said. Absolutely great sci-fi, sci-fantasy. Absolutely great sci-fantasy. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's it for this week. Oh, okay. Well, it's 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 quite good. We got a, a smattering of uh, opinions uh, from the listeners with that one, with, uh, with someone even saying that they found it as dull as d- dishwater. Which, in some respects, is quite refreshing to hear because I know that this is a, this is a fan favorite, and I think you know, I mean, we're following in that line because we we generally like the story. But uh, it was interesting to have someone else's perspective on it. I understand how the whole TARDIS thing it might be too much for people to bear, perhaps. <laughs> it's, uh, I don't know. Not for me though. No, no. I mean, if it's like what we were talking about before. If if you are going to have a story which centres on on the TARDIS, I think this is the way to do it. And in that sense, it's it's a one off. Um, we had it in classic Doctor Who with throwaway lines that you know, the, 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 you know, there the was a massive swimming pool and um, and sometimes uh, exploring the interior of the TARDIS works a little bit. So, for example, it's there at the beginning of the Mask of Mandragora, but that's a, that's a way of introducing a new design of console room, and then you just crack on with the story. It becomes a problem in stories like The Invasion of Time, which I think on the whole is a very good story, but then is ruined by this, you know, this exploration. Yeah, what happened there? <laughs> oh, jeez. I don't know. Yeah, the, the, the quality of the story just suddenly plummets. Um, it, it, you know, it's not great. Um, and then we said before, I think, uh, I mean, Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS. I mean, I haven't seen it in a while. So at some point it may it may be interesting to see if uh, if rewatching it I reevaluate it in any way, but yes. I doubt it. It, it. That's a story that I would describe as dull as dish dishwater. And with regards to corridors, I think, especially considering the the set limitations, but Castrovalva probably um, comes to my mind as being um, the most memorable corridor kind of. Th- thing going on <laughs> yeah well I, the director of that story uh, Fiona Cummings I mean she actually said that one of the things that you know t- she wanted to ensure was that um, she didn't want the the visual experience of constantly being in the TARDIS for almost a, a, an episode and a half which is quite a long time um, you know she, she wanted it to you know break up the pattern and the rigidity of the TARDIS and I think they actually do quite a good job with pretty much you know using the same flattage but incorporating in different ways, uh, you know, they and given to... it given its scope because they're trying to navigate the way around and not get lost. Yes, yeah. Um, so I think you know they managed to do it really well with uh, a little bit of imagination using the same flattages and um, incorporating, you know, like a, a silver column in the middle of this thing, um, this massive room, as a way to break up the the, the rigidity of it. So you know. Th- that's a, that's one way to do it, um, but I think really 
uh, exploring the TARDIS too much, I think, is a bit of a risk. Um, and they managed to... Because, nothing, you know, this entire story isn't just... I mean, it's centred on the TARDIS, but really it's about relationships. And that's where the focus is on, and that's, I think, the, the main reason why the story works. So, uh, we did a poll on Twitter. How would you describe the Doctor's Wife episode? Um, good or bad? Do you want to hazard a guess on the result? Um, I think most people would say it was good. Um, I don't know, 98%? Um, 66% good and about 33% bad so two thirds said it was good ah okay that's um, I mean that's still a respectable uh, score but that's uh, a lot lower I mean, than I only, only three but... people voted no oh. just kidding it was, it was 18 <laughs> <laughs> oh right okay <laughs> right okay um, so a quick conclusion and a score I guess at this stage it's hard to summarise a conclusion um, because we've, we've talked about it so much. Um, yeah, good story, a good exploration of themes of the science fiction genre. We had the the whole elements of the non-linear, non-linear stuff. We had the time stuff going on in the corridors. Mm-hmm. Um, good character drama, an interesting villain. A threat, uh, emotion. It was all in there. Yes, and yeah. it was an interesting pace. It felt like a lot was crammed in in such a short story, and it seemed to just fly by. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, really good story. Um, I'm gonna. I kind of came out with a nine out of ten. Ah, okay. That's uh, that's a that's a really good score. Um. I think for me, I would you know I would summarize it uh, pretty much the same way. I mean, one thing I w- would uh, mention it is um, one thing I would mention is that I think it's it's great that someone like Neil Gaiman has has finally written for the show. I- I'm not so familiar with his work; it's got to be said, but I am you know a, a little bit. And you know, he he worked with Terry Pratchett. Uh, that in himself makes the man a legend. Um, you know, someone as, as as literary as him writing for the show, I just think is is amazingly cool. So I, I love I love that. And he provides a very good uh, imaginative uh, adventure. The story itself is, is is simple, but told very well, and has this great mixture of you know you got tragedy, horror, there's romance. Uh, it's got pretty much everything in there, balanced quite well. Um, so I do like the story an awful lot. Um, I also think the the acting's uh, really rather good. I know one of our listeners said that he thought it was hammy, but each to their own. Um, I've got to, you know, I think the cast were really good, but I think emphasis for me has really got to go on Matt, uh, to Matt Smith. Um, I think he was uh, fantastic throughout. Um, having said all that, though, there is a part of me, and I, I can't articulate, I cannot fully articulate the reasons why. Um, but there is a part of me that that thinks that the story could have been a bit better in some way, maybe a little bit more atmospheric, and maybe not as fast paced. Um, but anyway, I, st- I still really like it. But um, but anyway, I I don't give it as a high score as you, Rob. But I still think it's respectable. I give it seven and a half. Seven and a half. Mm. Ooh, I forgot about the halves. I haven't done that in a while. <laughs> yeah, good score. Um, so thank you very much for listening. Do remember to follow us on socials. We're on Facebook.com/slash/cloisterbell, Twitter at podcastbell. Instagram, we are cloister underscore bell. 
um, you can support us on Patreon for early access and more. And Liam, what are we talking about next week? Well, um, it's actually uh, one of our favourite doctors and one we really respect, but we haven't actually visited that area an awful lot. It's not going to be a massive surprise because we're going linear. It's a Peter Capaldi story. Um, I've chosen Flatline. I don't remember what that is. <laughs> so <laughs> that will be interesting. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna sort of tease you a joke a bit and go, uh, "It's sleep no more." But mm, please, I, please no. No, I think no. We've, we've made an oath never to watch that again. Yeah, and I, I do intend to stick with that. It's just, yeah. I mean, that episode actually made me feel physically sick watching it, <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating. Um, I don't get it because it had uh, it was Reese Shearsmith. Yeah, and he's amazing. It was so bizarre. Like, what? Why? Why? What went wrong? I don't even want to discuss it. In fact, I, I do have in my head a list of Doctor Who episodes that I have blacklisted from the podcast in my mind. Just tem- one of them. I'm tempted. Okay, well, <laughs> well, well, that's that's a discussion for another time. Ah, uh, okay. So yes, I've um, uh, chosen Flatline. Well, thank you for listening. Goodbye, listeners. You'll hear from us soon. Yeah. Bye. Bye, everyone. The TARDIS Cloister Bell. Imminent disaster. The Cloister Bell? Yes. What's that? Well, it's a sort of communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations. That's the cloister bell. Don't worry about that for now. It's not really terribly significant. The cloister bell? Oh, no.